Is anybody here a whiner? I have to sort of raise my hand. Elizabeth's probably going to be... There's something about young people. They don't tend to whine as much. Well, sometimes they can whine more. But I'm thinking of this mission trip. They don't have money. Give us 24 hours. We're going to pray. And instead of focusing on the crisis, they focus on Christ. Instead of focusing on the doom of we're not going to be able to go on this trip that we've planned, they focus on the deliverance that God's going to provide. Instead of focusing on the pain and the heartache, they look at the promises and they claim those. We can learn something from our young people. I tell you, I was reminded this week, I was sitting next to somebody, and uh, I, I really like this person, I admire this person, but sometimes they can be a bit of a whiner. And sometimes they're really good at rehearsing the whining. And I happened to be with this individual, and I saw as they were rehearsing the whining, not just to me, but then they'd go around, have you heard all of my woes? Have you heard all my woes? Now, I don't want to be critical, because... I understand that people are hurting. There's been times that I've been hurting. But I think far too often for myself, I can't speak about you, but far too often for myself, I like to rehearse the negative instead of focus on the solution, which is Jesus Christ. And in this series, Hope in These Last Days, we can wring our hands and we can get nervous and what's this going to look like, what's going to happen, or we can focus on Christ. He is there. He's from the end from the beginning. He's the beginning, the end, the middle, everything. He's there. And he hasn't forgot about us. He's not surprised by what we're going to face. He knows. And he's with us every step of the way. So I hope that this series has not been one of doom and gloom, but looking at the Christ behind the crisis. Who will carry you and I through the coming storm? Amen? And so we're just going to jump right in today. We have a little bit of ground to cover, but I promise to get you out before 3.30. But just a little review, you're welcome. This person over here is not a whiner. Little review as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, even now as the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, we see a reaction for or against, don't we? Same gospel, some receive it, some hearts are warmed, and some are hardened. And there are certain aspects, unique aspects of the gospel that goes to the ends of the earth. And what are, we, what are they? We talked about them. It's obedience to God, it's body temple, it's judgment, it's the Sabbath. It's all tucked right there in the three angels' message. And God is calling them out of Babylon. But we have to remember that most of God's people are still where? In Babylon. And God is calling them out. They are his people, but he's calling them out. We also have looked at how the devil, seeing the gospel of Revelation 14, 6, going rapidly around the planet, comes at it with a counterfeit revival, with signs, with miracles, with wonders. And we looked at that. So you have two things happening simultaneously. You have the mighty working of the Holy Spirit, And you have the marvelous working of demons. As this comes to a crescendo, all hell breaks loose on earth. Natural disasters, economic disasters, war, conflict, strife. And all of this shakes and shakes and shakes the church. And in an attempt to appease God, 
to come together and pray, there's a National Sunday law that will be passed. And we looked at that. Where the world religions, they maintain their differences, but they unite on Sunday sacredness. And first, there is pressure to go along. They offer physical security and economic security, the ability to buy or sell. But eventually, it mounts and gets more and more intense until your life will be asked of you. If, we, if you worship how we tell you, when we tell you, and as we claim to have the corner of truth, as they will say, based on the world majority coming together and uniting, there will be this national Sunday law, and we will be strongly encouraged, but eventually, by pain of death, asked to do this. In the midst of all of this, the honest in heart are settled into the truth. We talked about the shaking, the shaking, the shaking. And those that are honest are settled in the church truth while the unconverted are sifted out. Now that could be happening now with a personal crisis in your life, but for most, for the large majority, it will happen as this crescendo mounts and the National Sunday Law comes into place. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power, empowering the gospel to go to the ends of the earth in what we call the loud cry, and when every human being has an opportunity to be fully sold out for Christ or against Christ, then human probation closes and the seven last plagues are, are poured out. And the closing of probation, I believe, is not so much a matter of time's up but rather a time when people are made up or have made up their minds. In the midst of the growing crisis, in the midst of the spread of the gospel, their hearts have either softened and they have accepted the seal of God or their hearts have become hardened and they receive the mark of the beast. And no amount of time is going to change anyone's mind. They are set in what they believe. And following in the seven last plagues, God proves his ability to read the heart of a person. He proves that despite what happens, those with the seal remain faithful to him and those with the mark remain rebellious towards him. In a sense, I can't fully prove this, but my own personal theory, in a sense, I believe God is sealing and marking people as a way to make everyone know I can read the heart. You can't. Prove it. Okay, I'll put a seal and a mark, and we'll go through an, another testing time, these seven last plagues, and no one will change. Those that are loyal to me will remain loyal to me, and those that are against me will remain against me. And it turns out that God is absolutely, 100%, as always, right and correct. In fact, we find an example of this. After the third plague, verse 7 of chapter 16 in Revelation, we read, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. They haven't changed their mind. They're still settled in Jesus Christ. But then after the fourth plague, we read of the other group, Revelation 16, verse 8, And they did not repent and give him glory. And again, after the fifth plague, verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. 
doesn't matter what happens. I am settled. I'm not moving. My mind has been made up. And probation has closed. It's not so much that they can't change their mind. It's that they won't change their mind. And so, last week, we looked at how in each of the plagues, God is vindicating his people. All the things that man claimed, I said last week, it was two weeks ago, all the things that man claimed he could offer, he, when it comes, push comes to shove, he cannot deliver. Man can't deliver. And we look through those. In fact, let's just review some of these. The first plague, all physical security is in Christ. That's the point of the first plague. Second plague, All economic security is in Christ. Man can't supply economic security. Initially, they say they can, but when the second plague falls, they can't deliver. The third plague, my life is in Christ. We'll protect your life. They can't do it. Only Christ can protect your life. Fourth plague, the center of my worship is in Christ. Those that worship the sun God are burned by the sun, and only Christ is the true one that deserves our worship. And the fifth plague, all truth is in Christ. They claim to have the truth. The majority claim to have the truth. But they don't have that either. All truth is in Christ. So those are the first five plagues. But now I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible, and we're going to look at the last two today as we close out this series Hope for these last days. And we're here in Revelation chapter 16, beginning verse 12, where we have the sixth bowl or sixth plague being poured out. Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. In verse 16, it calls this the battle of Armageddon. River Euphrates. An angel pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. I want to ask you, is this literal or is this figurative? Is this symbolic? And how about the kings of the east? How about the frogs? Are those literal or are those symbolic? Because if one is literal, then they all have to be literal. If the kings of the east are literal, then would you not say that the dragon of verse 13 is also literal? Or mouth of the beast is also literal? Or false prophet is also literal? Is it all literal? Let's read verse 14 again. The one we just read. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. For the spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. If the first five plagues are literal and I believe that they are, why do we at times interpret the last two plagues as symbolic? And I believe that they are. I believe there's at least three reasons 
that can lead us in that direction. I want to share those with you this morning. The first reason is the first five plagues, although they, infect, they affect the entire world, I would suggest that they are not universal. In fact, Great Controversy even says these plagues are not universal, talking about the first five, or the inhabitants of the earth would be wholly, what? Cut off. No one would survive. And so it affects the planet, and we've seen in recent times how something over here affects everybody over there too. But it's not around completely the whole planet, or no one would survive. We'd be wholly cut off. Secondly, uh, the language of the sixth and seventh plague is the language of Revelation 13 and 17, which are highly symbolic. And we already have keys to interpret its symbolism. Does that make sense? If we've already talked about these things in other places, we already have things that they represent, and then we can bring that here, we can formulate a clear picture. And thirdly, the final events that come to climax in Earth's history at end time involve the whole world. And verse 14 makes that clear. So with that justification, we can see that the first five plagues are literal. And while they affect the whole world, we are told that they are not universal or no one would survive. But the last two, I believe to be symbolic. They are universal. And we can put their symbolism together because Revelation's already interpreted these symbols for us in other places. Does that make sense? So we can put those symbols and assign them right here to this plague. So Revelation chapter 12 now. Let's look at it. Sorry, chapter 16, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up. What do you know about the great river Euphrates? Where was that? Well, it went through Babylon. In fact, we looked at that a little bit last night. And then as we continue reading, and the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Was the river Euphrates ever literally dried up in the past? Yes, it was. If you were here last night, we told the story. When Cyrus in 539 B.C. comes down to Babylon... Babylon is the supreme power in the world at that time. It has walls 60 feet high. That's a high wall. Walls wide enough for two chariots to race side by side. Has a 20-year food supply in the city. Has a fresh water supply with the Euphrates River running through it. And if you remember the story that I spoke of last night, the Medes and the Persians surround Babylon... But they're so confident. They have this 20-year food supply that they throw down food from the walls. You look hungry, here's some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But Cyrus commands that they dig tributaries, make large reservoirs. He reroutes the water and his troops march under the gates. You remember the story? In fact, Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Who's holding the right hand? God is holding the right hand. To subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not 
be shut. And I said last night, here Cyrus is named 150 years before he's born. You want to talk about prophecy? This is prophecy. In fact, you can go to the British Museum there in London, and you can see the story in rock record of Cyrus' attack on Babylon on this Cyrus Cylinder, is what they call it, in three different languages, talking about how Cyrus is the king of the east and how he dries up the literal Euphrates and overthrows Babylon and signs a decree that God's people can go free. And ultimately, under the decree of Artaxerxes, the Israelites go free and go home to rebuild Jerusalem. So here's the parable. Are you listening? Babylon, the center of false religion, holds the Israelites in bondage. Cyrus, the king of the east, with the drying up of the river Euphrates, overthrows Babylon and signs a decree for God's people to go free. So at end time, they've passed a decree. Under the auspices of spiritual Babylon, church and state, what do they do? They unite. A national Sunday law is passed. The issue is God's law, it's worship and the Sabbath. And those who pass it say they can deliver you from all the heartache and all the pain. And the latter rain falls, the loud cry is given. Everyone has the opportunity to decide for themselves And as we just mentioned, probation closes. The plagues start to fall. Everything they said they could deliver, they cannot. Physical security, economic security, whole life, our worship, all light and truth. And as the plagues are poured out, the people's support is withdrawn. And the king of the east, which is Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords, east, by the way, is a symbol of deliverance. And the king of the east delivers his people. In fact, this idea of East being a symbol of deliverance, we see this in Great Controversy 640. Soon there appears in the East a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds who? The Savior. That's deliverance from the East. In fact, if we turn over to Revelation chapter 19, Verse 15 and 16. This is Christ on the white horse who's coming to deliver his people. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine presses of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is plague language. So Revelation 16 is talking about the collapse of every earthly system. Man's message, we can win the ultimate victory. God's message, only God and his people will be ultimately victorious. Amen? So in Revelation 16, returning there, if you kept your finger there, we have Babylon and we have spiritual Babylon. We have Cyrus, the king of the east, symbolic of Jesus. 
our deliverer coming from the east. We have the river Euphrates, the water symbolizing the people's support, and it's drying up, which is the withdrawal of the public support. And when that support dries up, what does Satan do? Verse 13. We're now in Revelation 16 again. Verse 13. As the people's support draws up, the devil responds. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And so you have dragon, Satan working through paganism. You have the beast... Satan working through papal powers, and you have the false prophet, Satan working through Protestantism. And frogs were the gods of Egypt. And in Egypt, they spread rapidly. So frogs are a symbol of false religion spreading rapidly in the sixth plague. They are a supernatural manifestation that culminate with Satan trying to impersonate Christ. And you might recall that frogs were the last great plague that Pharaoh's ma uh, magicians were able to duplicate. You remember that? The last great plague that Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate were the frogs. So this is Satan's last great deception as he tries to bring unity one last time to recapture the state powers because his unity, his support is drying up. So the devil will use signs, false miracles, who will impersonate Christ for the last great battle. So you might be thinking, why deceive people after the close of probation? Well, as a means to rally the people to destroy God's people. To rally those people who've been lacking support for the Babylonian system because it could not deliver what they want. So this is the devil's final rally of the earth to destroy, overthrow, and kill God's people. He's going to go down fighting, and you can believe it. And so Revelation 16, 16, we read, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Everybody always wants to know about Armageddon. Armageddon is a Hebrew-Greek word that they believe to be kind of a mixture of the two. And it means mountain of Megiddo. Keep your finger here in Revelation 16 and turn with me to Judges. There in the front of the Old Testament, Judges chapter 4, beginning verse 15. And in Judges chapter 4, verse 15, they're in the valley of Megiddo. And many cities are built on that same place. We have the story of Deborah. And Israel was surrounded, mountains on either side, with armies in front and behind. It appears that Israel will be totally crushed and destroyed. It appears that there's no way out, around, or through. Do you ever feel like you're in a situation like that? So as a result, Israel turned to God, and we read about it in Judges chapter 4, verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. 
the Lord, if you missed it, took control. And when there was no way, God made a way. And he delivered his people. We see it said similarly in chapter 5, verse 19. In Judges, turn one, one or two pages over, chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Here we read, The kings came and fought, then the kings of Cana fought. In Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from where? The heavens, the stars from the courses fought against Sisera. So the message, God did what was absolutely impossible. He brought deliverance there in Megiddo. At a time that Israel thought they would be utterly destroyed, that there was no way in, around, through, they were stuck. And Megiddo was a symbol of victory. Megiddo was a symbol of deliverance. And in the same way, at the end, it looks like there is no hope. But God's people hang on, and they're praying, and they're trusting, and they're waiting. And while it appears that the forces of evil will destroy God's people completely and entirely and eradicate them from the planet, heavenly reinforcements arrive, and God's people are delivered. Can I hear an amen? And so if you kept your finger there in Revelation, I didn't even follow my own advice. Chapter 16, verse 17, we have the last plague. And this is good news, friends. You're not going to want to miss this. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, we read, Then another angel came out of the temple. Nope, that's the wrong one. That's chapter 14. Revelation 16, verse 17, here we go. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is is done. It is finished. Four times in the Bible we hear it said, it is finished. At creation, God looks at his work and he says it is finished. At the cross, right before he hangs his head and dies, he says, it is finished. Here in the seventh plague, at the second coming of Christ, he says, it is finished. And fourthly, after the millennium, when New Jerusalem descends in Revelation 21, verse 6, he says, it is finished. There's no more death, no more heartache, no more horror, no more hunger. It is finished. And we continue on, verse 18. And there was noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was great earthquakes, such a mighty and great earthquake as it had not occurred since men were on the earth. And now the great city, Babylon, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give up her cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was, ex- it was exceedingly great. If you say that Babylon and Euphrates is literal, you destroy the co- climax of the whole great controversy. It appears that there is no way out, around, or through, but deliverance comes from where? Above. And God saves his people. So plague number seven, with giant hailstones fall, and Jesus comes, God's message is, it is finished. It's done. 
The controversy has gone on long enough. I'm coming to take my people home. Do you want to go home? I like this quote in Great Controversy, 633. It says, the precious Savior will send help just when we need it. Don't you like that? Sometimes I I say often, the Lord is rarely early, but he's always right on time. The precious Savior will send help just when we need it. The way to heaven is consecrated by his footprints. Every thorn that wounds our feet has wounded his. Every cross that we are called to bear, he has borne before us. The Lord permits conflicts to prepare the soul for peace. The time of trouble is a fearful ordeal ordeal for God's people, but it is the time for every true believer to look up and by faith he may see the bow of promise encircling him. Friends, that's good news. There's another text I love, Isaiah chapter 51, 11. I believe these might be our final words here on earth. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come singing with Zion... And everlasting joy shall be upon their head, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. And then this other one from Isaiah. Actually, I think these are the last words we're going to say on earth. I got ahead of myself. Isaiah 25, verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have what? Waited for him. And who will save us? He will save us. Behold, this is our God. That's good news. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Great controversy again, 644, we read this. The voice of the Son of God calls forth the sleeping saints. Are you looking forward to that? He looks upon the graves of the righteous. Then raising his hands to heaven, he cries, Awake, 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 ye that sleep in the dust, and arise. Can you imagine that? Is this just some sort of fictitious idea, or will this actually happen? I believe it will happen. I love the verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And then I love this. Verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What is ahead for us? Not tomorrow, not next week, not even next year. Not even during the period we've been studying about. I want to ask, what's ahead for us in the distant future, say, five million years from now? How much will we remember our troubled existence here on this earth five million years from now? Will we carry scars of the conflicts? 
Will the memory of pain and persecution mar the happiness of heaven and the new earth? Paul speaks to this in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Anybody have some sufferings of this present time? Maybe I should ask it a different way. Anybody not have sufferings at this present time? We were in Sabbath school, and Dr. Tryon was teaching and going through some things and, and hitting all these things. Maybe you're dealing with this or this or this or this or this. And somebody in the class said, maybe you're dealing with all of them. And we said, have mercy. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. That should stop you in your tracks right there. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wow. Because sometimes I'm a whiner. Elizabeth. <laughs> Elizabeth wrote, I need you to memorize Romans 8.18. See if I can back it up. For I consider that sufferings and whining of this present time, David, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in you. Calm down. There's hope in Jesus. I believe heaven is for real. And whatever suffering you're going through, five million years from now, it will not ever enter into your mind. You might be able to remember it so you can look back and say, wow, God was good. But heaven, I believe, is for real. We're going to get to walk with Christ in the garden. He's going to show us all the things that he's created. Be like going to the zoo, but there's no fences. Hey, check out this, this tiny little creature. Look at all the fuzz on that bumblebee. Wow, look at that stinger. Wow. Oh, here comes a big, you know, grizzly bear. Check this guy out. And everybody, you know, the kids, I can just imagine, piling on the back and falling off, and they just kind of rolls them down. And all the fun they're going to have with all these, and we're going to just explore, and Jesus will show. Now, look at this. This giraffe, look at how long his neck is. Look at how big his tongue is. Oh, do you want to feel it? Oh, I don't think I want to. We're going to get to do all of that. And so much more. We don't get to look at it at a distance, but up close. I believe heaven is for real. And I like this picture here. If God has time for all the little children, let the children come, right? If he has time for them, I bet you he's going to have time for you too. And time for me. And we're going to walk and we're going to talk. We're going to converse. We're going to learn. We're going to grow. And that's what our future holds. For the next five million years, an eternity that makes every suffering and whining and complaining and heartache, and I'm not trying to belittle anybody's heartache. I know there are people here going through significant stuff, but someday it will all be put away. It'll all be done away with, and God will say, it is finished. Enter into the joy of my Lord, and there's no expiration on that joy. It will go on and on and on. And so I just want to make a simple call. I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward. But if you want to humbly commit to Jesus, 
to stick by him and to trust him, to lean on him, to never let him go through those trying times and those difficult times, those times that you don't see clearly and you don't understand and you're asking why. But if you want to humbly say, Jesus, I trust you, I just want you to simply raise your hand. I pray that by God's grace, all of us will trust him all the way through and that when we look at the crisis, we will forget the crisis and look at Christ. We won't worry about the doom, but we'll focus on the deliverance and know who has the end in mind and who wrote the last chapter. God is in control and he will, if you let him, I promise he will see you and I through. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to commit to trusting in you. And Lord, we know that our promises are like ropes of sand. We know how many times we've made promises and have not been able to keep them. But Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We want to trust you, not just in the coming crisis, but in the present crisis. We want to hold on to your hand and trust that you will see us through. And we want to look at all of life in the context of eternity in five million years from now we will enjoy and be experiencing who we will be with and to be right by your side. We don't want to give that up for anything. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit and your power and your might that you promised to us will enable us to live for you each and every day and trust you completely. In your name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.